Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric. And today we're reading short and deep, Hedone by H.P. Lovecraft. I'm saying Hedone as if I don't know how to pronounce it because I don't know. I, I know hedonism, and I think it's related. Um, I found this in the ancient track um, uh, collection, or the collection of H.P. Lovecraft's um, poetry, uh, written in 1927, and it's in the section um, called Occasional Verse, um, which is poems written for occasions, rather than uh, he occasionally wrote verse. Um, and uh, I, I thought it was wonderful. Um, I just picked it because of the title to read, and I thought, oh, this is wonderful. Um, and then I sent it to you, and uh, uh, we do a lot of Lovecraft, so I have to keep telling you, mm, you know, this is really good. Make a great yeah. reading, short and deep. And then, uh, <laughs> you know, so, well, we do do a lot of Lovecraft, but then I said, oh, just read it. You never know. You might like it. And I think you, you said, yep, we're going to have to do a show on it or something to that effect. Yeah, I, I, I like it. Um I like it in part because it's good, and I like it in part, given what you just said about the amount of Lovecraft that we use, that it's actually not typical of his work. Um, yeah, it's very unusual in many respects. It, it shows his very classical education, self-education, um, and and his sort of philosophy in a way we don't normally see. Well, I don't know if it's his philosophy. Uh, well, yeah. Okay. I'm with you on that. Uh, by the way, um, I, too, was able to discover a publication date for this okay. but in, in 19, the beginning of 1927, but not a location. Where was it published before it was gathered together? I do not know that. Uh, we know it was pulled out, uh, out of a letter um, that's in the John Hay Library in um, Providence, Rhode Island at uh, uh, University of Brown. But um, uh, we do not know the, where it was published. It, it could have been a fanzine. It could have been, or as they called them, amateur magazines. Um, right. We don't, we don't really know. But Too we, bad, because it's not an amateur effort. No, it's not. And there is a later publication um, in 1984. Um, but w I'm pulling this straight out of the, um, the, uh, the wonderful book that everybody who loves H.P. Lovecraft poems should get um, from the Hippocampus Press called The Ancient Track. So uh, I, I know that you, you suggested that I read this, um, and I will. But um, I have a question. Mm -hmm. Do you think so, – and, and here's the <laughs> – this poem, as you say, uh, reveals a lot. It uses a lot of – conspicuous reference yes. to to Lovecraft self-education. Mm -hmm. So there are words here like Sermian mm -hmm. that um, my guess is most people wouldn't know. I'd never heard of it. And they, and they wouldn't know what it refers to. Um, now, one real question about this poem is how we should take this dense use of, or at least this conspicuous use of terms which aren't really quite known. Some of them are kind of like, well, I thought I've heard that before. Mm -hmm. And some of them are like, I've never heard that before. One question is, 
do we read this poem as if we didn't get this stuff? Or do we read this poem as if, by golly, Lovecraft is expecting us to get it? He gives us credit for knowing all this stuff. Is it a show-off thing that puts us off? Or is it a, a private joke that he's sharing, as it were? Yeah. Um, the reason I ask it now is that one could read this poem, but first I could just name some of these words and indicate some of the obvious things that they refer to if one has done the appropriate homework, or we could read it and not know what the words are, and then perhaps read it again, reminding us of what the words mean. Mm-hmm. And, oh, mm-hmm. what do you think would, would give a truer sense of how the world should take this and wow. also get at what Lovecraft might have intended? Yeah, so what what I did the first time is I just read it, and then I'm like, hmm, don't know what that word means, and then I went and looked it up, and I was like, oh, okay, I get it, and then I put some stuff together. So I would say read it through, and then uh, I've got a few, like, uh, mostly they're allusions, references to other works that uh, I think he's using to as the background material for the construction of his competing philosophies uh, in this poem. So we read it once through just as a word, a collection of word sounds, and then okay. read it again uh, where necessary with the with the um, allusions pointed okay. out. So I'll just, I, I will do this. I, I accept your suggestion. I will say this for those who don't have the poem in front of them. Um, this clearly was meant to be read rather than heard. Mm-hmm. So your eye would know that some of these unusual words have capital letters, meaning that they are not common nouns or common adjectives. They are proper nouns or proper adjectives. And those are Sirmian, Lesbia, uh, and Mantuan. Mm -hmm. Those words one should know. And Palatine. Mm -hmm. One should know those are not just adjectives. adjectives. Yeah. Okay. Hedone. Catullus from his Sirmian bower, the world of fancy thrust away and drunken in the moonlight lit hour midst roses with his lesbia lay. For him in vain dead cities dreamed and isles of wonder starred the sea, blind while the Roman eagles gleamed, deaf to the songs of victory. And as the days of dalliance sped and moons and roses came and went, the lips of Lesbia comforted a heart with present bliss content. But month by month and year by year, before the moon a shadow grew and roses shriveling and sere fell blighted by a poison dew. Those lips, so tempting once to him, now drooled, repulsive in his sight, whilst o'er the ivory cheek and limb spread age and vice a livid blight. Weary of love, he turned at last to once scorned dreams in late desire, but found his deadened soul bound fast to fetid flesh and charnel fire. So frantic through the Sirmian dusk, Catullus flees in endless pain as ghostly winds of rose and musk recall his idle hours in vain. 
And at his heels there seems to prowl a dogging shape with matted hair whose burning breath obscene and foul pours horror on the midnight air. But in the Mantuan moonlight still the golden fancies sparkling lie whilst wonder hovers on the hill in forms too old and pure to die. Proud were the plain the eagles press and glory crowns the palatine for godlike dreams the dreamer bliss with festive joys of source divine yeah it's it's pretty obscure right what he's getting at um so very first thing i looked up was who who is this catullus guy sounds familiar <laughs> uh, I, I i literally did not know i i think i think he must be some old dead roman guy and of course, that's exactly who he turned out to be, uh, Gaius Valerius Catullus, a poet and uh, dude <laughs> from ancient Rome. And we have his poems, um, a lot of them, anyways. Um, and it turns out that Lesbia was his uh, pseudonym for, or a masking name for uh, a real lover of his, um, who apparently was some other uh, Roman's wife. They had a Sirmian bower, that is to say, they had a place in what's now modern-day Serbia, um, and uh, the the relationship they had is documented in poems written about and to Lesbia, um, and they are pretty hot stuff. <laughs> <laughs> um, I wa- I have one here. I I read a bunch of them. Um, I want to read you one of them. Before you do, we mm-hmm. should just – the first word is the title. Mm-hmm. Well, yep. hedene means pleasure. Yep. In Greek, all the other references are Roman or Latin, but hedene is the title, and it means pleasure. Mm-hmm. Okay. And the relationship uh, that is documented in, in these poems um, are hedonistic. So this is uh, this is poem number se- seven, and uh, you're going to have to bear with me in the pronunciation of the the kind of poem it is. But its meter is hendicasyllabic, <laughs> which means basically eleven syllables per line. And there's a, a Roman or Latin version, but I, I'll just read the uh, English translation of this is uh, the poetry of Gaius Valerius Catullus, uh, number seven. You ask how many kissings of yours, Lesbia, would be enough for uh, enough and more for me? As great as the number of Libyan sands that lie in Lesper, Lesperchium, bearing Cyrene, between the oracle of sweltering Jupiter and the sacred tomb of Battus, or as many as the stars that, when the night is silent, see people's secret love affairs, for you to kiss so many kisses is enough, and more for love-crazy Catullus, and, which inquiring men could not count completely, nor an evil tongue bewitch. So, his GF asks him, um, uh, how many kisses do you need, Catullus? And he says, let me write a poem about that. <laughs> and his answer is, uncountable number of kisses. Um, right. as, the, uh, as the relationship... Um, uh, has its ups and downs. Um, uh, eventually, he has become 
less enamored of his relationship with her. Um, they're both they're both less drugged by the uh, by the brain chemistry and become um, uh, less bewitched by love. And Catullus's poems turn a little sort of less um, lovey and a little more. Oh my God, what have I got myself into? So that is the reference behind what Lovecraft's doing at the beginning here. But he contrasts that with what's going on in Rome. Here they're off in the provinces in in Serbia or Sermia, right? Yeah. Um, And Mm -hmm. he contrasts that with what's going on in Rome. And that comes with the... With the uh, Roman eagles, and I think that's in the second stanza and the uh, final stanza. Yep, the Palatine. There you go. And Mantua, of course, is uh, also in Italy. Uh, that's famous to me as the place where Romeo goes when he kills Tybalt. He has to leave. Uh, he has to flee town and um, so as to avoid being killed by the families. Um, it's, sorry. it's a town in Lombardy, but I actually think there's a different reference being made here. Oh, okay. Um, I, I just want to point out that that um, one of the reasons uh, Catullus and Lesbia, although that's not her real name, are uh, off in the provinces is because uh, it'd be much easier for the relationship to be found out um, in Italy itself. There's another. Well, okay, I, I don't want to stop you. Keep going. Keep no, going. I'm done. Uh, I'm I'm done. Well. Um, <laughs> It, it turns out that Lesbia had a, a approximate had at least five other lovers. Mm-hmm. And so in the stanza that says the lips so tempting once to him now drooled repulsive in his sight, um, whilst or the ivory cheek and limb spread age and vice a livid blight. I think at first reading, you might think, ah, oh, yes, well, they were ivory cheek and limb but they no longer look that way because of age and vice. In fact, they may still be um, cheek. They still may be ivory because Catullus is getting more and more angry. Yes. That this woman is not uh, attached to him the way he's attached to her. And so this word vice is what really is getting him down. And a livid blight, a livid uh, there are all kind. There are a number of definitions of livid, but the first one is the color of a bruise. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, one can think of that as a kind of mottled purple brown, or one can think of it later as the bruise is being healed, or at first when the bruise first occurs as a kind of brownish red. And I kind of think of it as brownish red because it stands against the rose imagery that we see here as the days of dalliance sped. The moons and roses came and went. So we're telling time by the same mechanism that gets us through a woman's sexual cycle and by the symbol of passion that, in fact, lingers and then dies. And if it hangs on too long, the color we get as the petals brown is livid. So we see what's happening here, not just because time passes, but because people are untrue to each other. This contrasts with the Roman eagles, which are not simply images of Rome, but they are on the standard that is used to hold the pennants before each Roman legion. Mm -hmm. These are symbols of the Roman 
empire, yes. uh, the, right, of the uprightness. Now, the thing that makes Catullus most stand out among other Roman poets is that he tended to write about his own personal life. And you've just quoted a couple of poems of his about his personal life. While most Roman poets were concerned with the heroic, Rome was a martial society, and they were concerned with the heroic. The greatest poem of Rome is, in fact, the Aeneid, Mm -hmm. which is about the founding of Rome by a soldier who escapes the Trojan War and comes to found Rome and its martial society, honoring his own past by carrying his father on his back across the land and over the seas. So the Roman eagle stands for heroism, manliness, putting things in order. It doesn't fade. And indeed, when this was written, I mean, when when Catullus was writing, Rome was still, in fact, the, the dominant force in uh, in the world, as viewed from the notion of Mediterranean, middle of the world. Uh, the poet Virgil is the alternative to Catullus, and he is known as the Mantuan, mm. because that was his home, just as Sirmia is the home of the family into which Catullus was born. Mm. So when you said you think of this as competing philosophies, I agree completely. Mm-hmm. What we get is Catullus standing again because he's with Lesbia in the first stanza. He's the, the, the world is blind to him and it is blind and, and he is blind to it. He doesn't see the cities. He doesn't hear the songs of victory. He doesn't see the gleaming of the Roman eagles. Why gleam? Because they're in bronze on the top of these standards bearing the pennants of each of each legion. He sees none of that because he is more involved with Hedonae. It's worth understanding, and I'm sure Lovecraft knew this, that although Hedonae means pleasure, most English speakers know it only through the word that you cited, hedonism. Mm-hmm. Hedonism doesn't mean simply self-indulgence. Hedonism, in fact, traditionally, is the ethical position that pleasure is the greatest good. Right. So we have two competing value systems. Catullus standing for hedonism in that finer sense— and Virgil standing for a kind of heroic idealism. We begin by seeing Catullus seduced away from uh, from a Virgilian view of the world, but then under the reality of the faithlessness of Lesbia and his own aging, the wounds, livid blight that he bears, he becomes weary, tries then to turn to what was his desire when he was younger, but he found his deadened soul could not do it, right? He could not return to a time when someone could think of becoming a hero. And so that's why he sees death prowling. That that, that hound that's after him, it seems to me, is a reference to Thompson's The, the Hound of Heaven, which was very well known at the time that um, that Lovecraft is writing this. So we get 
a moment when the loss of that woman's attention gets Catullus to seek a different ideal, but it's no longer available to him. And he stands against having lost. He could have had, but now doesn't, this pure or the plain, the eagle's press, the glory crowns, the palatine. For godlike dreams, the dreamer bliss with festive joys, the source divine. But Catullus, he's past it. He can't get it back. I point out to you, and you know this better than I because you're such a student of Lovecraft. This poem was written within a year after effectively his wife separated from him. Mm. Lovecraft did marry. They lived together. They had financial difficulties. And nominally speaking, she said, well, I can get this better job in Cleveland. Mm -hmm. And she went to Cleveland and they maintained a, a legal relationship. And she would come back for a week or two at a time. And they never really divorced. But he, as far as I know, had no other relations with women after this. He was true to their useless marriage. Yep. But she went and had, like Catullus, other lovers, whatever she wanted to do. His, hus his wife in name only. So writing this poem, when he finally has to face the idea that he turned away from his high calling as a poet and and followed Hidene. His experience argues that there is no ethical support for hedonism. I but agree. That's uh, exactly the analysis I, I, I'm thinking. He's he's um he he's done this in other other poems <laughs> prior to his marriage, I think some we've covered, covered, including Unda, The Bride of the Sea, where he says advice to a young man, don't hang out with girls, right? There's better, better <laughs> stuff to do. And here, the tale of Catullus is a, um, it's a mistake, right? He thinks that Catullus and um, pl placing pleasure at the highest point is a huge mistake. It's, in a sense, he's saying, look at what happens to not just me and my body, my pain, right? But also to the woman I wanted to spend all my time with and now who perhaps still wants to be with me and I find her repulsive. I'm just going to read those center um, stanzas. Those lips so tempting once to him, now drooled, repulsive in his sight, while o'er the ivory cheek and limb spread age and vice and livid, a livid bright, blight. Weary of love, he turned at last to once-scorned dreams in late desire, which the dreams of perhaps, you know, being a part of the empire, being part of the victories, but found his deadened soul bound fast to fetid flesh and charnel fire. That charnel fire doesn't make me think uh, this is a Christian poem exactly, but maybe a venereal disease pro poem. Uh. Uh, so frantic throw the Sirmian dusk, Catullus flees in endless pain as ghostly winds of rose and musk. That rose that was once uh, so pleasurable is now uh, a musk, which is less pleasurable. Recalled his idle hours in vain. So he's regretting them. 
and at his heels there seems to prowl a dogging shape with matted hair. This is like a werewolf. She's turned into a werewolf whose burning breath, obscene and foul, pours horror on the midnight air. He's being chased by these nightmares. Now, we can interpret this as a misogyny, but I think it's also interpretable as regret that this is all, like, I've wasted my time, I've wasted my life. And then we get that contrast again. But in that, I and I'm glad you found Virgil in here, because I... I was thinking of Virgil, but I never, I never found any, you know, call out specifically that I had, if I'd known that he was from Mantua, I had completely forgotten it. Um, so it says, but in that Mantuan moonlight, still the golden fancy sparkling lie, whilst wonders hover on the hill in forms too old and pure to die. So this is very mysterious here. Is the hill here? the Palatine that's about to come up, or is it the hill he's fleeing from the Ceramian Bower, right? The garden with the, with the once beautiful roses and now that are a, nothing but a pain. Last stanza. Um, Proud o'er the plain the eagles press, and glory crowns the Palatine. For godlike dreams the dreamers, the dreamer bliss with festive joys of source divine. So I find those last two stanzas the most mysterious of this. Um, can you take a guess at what's going on there? I, I think what it strikes me is that the Mantuan moonlight is Virgil's, um, uh, is, is the, the light that Virgil casts on the world. Right. That the, the Roman eagles of the beginning of the poem become the eagles that now press um, over the plain. They cover everything. They're hovering in the air. These are no longer the golden shining eagles. They're not the, the lesions that are going out. These, this is the center of the Roman world. Um, <clears throat> ancient Rome was <clears throat> thought of as the a city of seven hills. And as they are arrayed, the central one, that is the fourth count from either end, um, is the Palatine. Mm -hmm. So the glory that, which you can see, by the way, from the Vatican today, you look up and across and that's the Palatine Hill. Mm -hmm. um, so the glory that crowns the Palatine is the glory that is Rome. I think that the Mantuan moonlight is what Catullus is now seeing in his mind that he should have been there because there things go on forever. Yeah. It may be a dream, but it is a permanent dream which yields festive joys as opposed to the hidden-a hidden that you get in mere bodily pleasure. Hmm. So the joy in the last line that comes from a source divine, well, I don't think it's a Christian god at all, no. but... But clearly the Romans were worshippers um, of Mars, that is, the god of war, and Jove, you know, the, the biggest of their gods. And so we have here a notion that to be part of that would give you permanent life and happiness. Mm -hmm. But you can't come to it after you've wasted yourself. Yeah. It's almost a discipline poem. It's a it's a poem about how, you know, you need to get up early in the morning and write write a lot. <laughs> like I was thinking what what it was the occasion. I do not have the context of the original letter 
uh, that it was taken from. So um, I'm assuming that it was in response to something like that. It, it, you know, sh- sure, it's fun to go to the movies and sure, it's fun to uh, play cards all night, but that's not going to get your, your work done. And if you really want to make something that's going to last and be immortal, you have to buckle down and uh, forego the pleasures of the flesh. Yes. So if you, you think, I want to go back to your your uh, early definition of occasional verse. Mm-hmm. Occasional verse, as you said, it's not verse you write every now and then. It's verse written on an occasion. Mm-hmm. The poet laureate of England has to write something when a new child is born, born exactly. to the monarch. Exactly. Right. So on the occasion of what was this poem written? And I would like to suggest that it was on the occasion of Lovecraft recognizing that his marriage was over. Yeah, I I think that's I mean, whether that is explicitly what he um, was writing it uh, for, I don't I doubt I doubt that he he consciously said that's what I'm writing. I think probably it was a response because he's writing so many letters, someone else's query. But I think you're you're looking up at the timing that is perfect um i want to point out the very next poem in the book and these are placed in the book by time of writing um is uh <laughs> it's a very funny poem because it's it's re- a lot of them uh, he, that's kind of what he thinks of himself as i think he thought of himself as a poet and um so he would write poems for the occasions of all sorts of things and the very next one in the in the book, the very next poem that we have of his extant uh, in the time of writing is called To Miss Beryl Hoyt Upon Her First Birthday, February 21st, 1927. I read it, and uh, it's it's a poem written for a, a, as a birthday present for a friend's baby. Right? Lovely. <laughs> now, the, the funny part is, you know... Uh, uh, one-year-olds don't have a lot of uh, qualities that you can talk about and experience that you can say things about. So it's uh, I re- reading the poem, it's all about, um, okay, the kid has green eyes or whatever. Um, one day those green eyes will be doing this. It's all about what the future holds for and potential for it is. And here um, Lovecraft looks back at an ancient poet who... I think, and rightly so. I mean, I've read a, I've read all of Virgil, actually, which is, I think, pretty funny. Um, and I, I, if I had read Catullus before, I had completely forgotten it. And I think that that's kind of his point, is that Catullus, you know, yeah, sure, we have his stuff, and maybe it's kind of interesting in a, in a certain way. But uh, Virgil, he was almost deified for what he did with the Aeneid, right? It is... It was a, a royally sponsored or imperially sponsored poem. Oh yes, and it is the foundation. It, it is, is the, the Odyssey of or, or the yeah. Iliad of you know Rome, and and it is a piece for the ages. Whereas Catullus's you know love poetry, eh? <laughs> <laughs> and yet, as we find by reading Lovecraft, motivated by Catullus, there is still always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts 
by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash sffaudio.com.